Everything has its season. Everything has its time. Show me a reason, and I'll soon show you a rhyme. Cats fit on the windowsill. Children fit in the snow. Why do I feel I don't fit in anywhere I go? Rivers belong where they can ramble. Eagles belong where they can fly. I've got to be where my spirit can run free. Gotta find my corner of the sky. Hello and welcome to Broadway Radio's This Week on Broadway for Sunday, October 15th. 2023. My name is James Marino, and in the broadcast today we have Peter Felicia and Michael Portantier. Peter is a playwright, journalist, and historian with a number of books. His new book, Brain Teasers for Broadway Geniuses, is now available wherever finer books are sold. Peter has columns at Masterworks Broadway, Broadway Select, and many other places. Hello, Peter. Hi. Hello. Also with us is Michael Portantier. Michael is a theater reviewer and essayist. He's the founder and editor of CastAlbumReviews.com. He is also a theatrical photographer whose photos have appeared in the New York Times and other major publications. You could see his photography work at FollowSpotPhoto.com. Hello, Michael. Hello. Hello. So, Peter, welcome back from your trip to Chicago, the city. God love and, you. <laughs> <yeah>. <laughs> and uh, we're going to talk a little bit about uh, some great, great theater in Chicago. People, people, it's like uh, our best kept secret. If you are coming in internationally uh, to see stuff in Broadway, you should really also think about Chicago and some of the other major cities uh, and uh, even minor cities. Where's that? What's that, that place in the, uh, in the Midwest? Is it Minnesota or Wisconsin's got like thousands of <laughs> productions every year? Uh, do you know what I'm talking about? It's, it's like somewhere that I never even think maybe it's uh, Wyoming or. Well, I doubt it's Wyoming, but uh, <clears throat> maybe it's Minnesota because it's the land of a thousand lakes. Maybe it's the land of a thousand theaters. Ah, yes. So we'll talk about Peter's trip to uh, Chicago. But next week, Peter, for the next yeah. two weeks, yeah. you are going to be down in Virginia. Tell us why. Oh, um, I play Larry, the big time Broadway producer is being produced um, in uh in Warrington, Virginia, at the Hope Theater. Matt Moore uh, is directing. Um, This came together so quickly. It was so amazing because last year we did a reading and my buddy Ellis Nassau came up after the reading and said, my friend in Virginia would love this play. I sent it to him that night. The next day he said, we're opening our season with it next year. I mean, I'm telling you, things should happen like this more often. But um, anyway, it's a semi-autobiographical play about uh, my growing up uh, in Boston and working in a hotel and meeting various people and investing in Broadway shows, a little bit of money. But um, that much of it is autobiographical, but it goes in directions that... Um, are not quite autobiographical, I'm, uh, I'm happy to say, and unhappy to say, too, for that matter. But anyway, um, allegedly, it's a comedy. We'll see if people laugh. We'll see <laughs> if people attend. Um, we'll see if anybody likes it. But um, anyway, yes, if you're anywhere in the Warrington, Virginia area, by all means, do drop in. I remember you said that Marilyn May was one of the guests in your hotel. Is she Absolutely. a character in the play? <laughs> no, she is not. <laughs> no, no, uh, no. Uh, 
really, um, sometime I'll tell the story about the Supremes uh, coming to the hotel if I haven't done that already. But anyway, <laughs> um, uh, no, it's a good story, actually. So, um, so I'll tease you with that. And uh, maybe in the upcoming weeks, I'll tell that story. So uh, Ellis Nassour, he is the connector, getting people together. And uh, his show, Honky Tonk Angel, has mm-hmm. uh, the Patsy Cline mm-hmm. uh, mm-hmm. Uh, he has musical. a new book coming out too He's, about Jesus oh, Christ, Christ Superstar. Jesus Christ you know, Superstar, yeah, yeah. yeah, that comes Absolutely. out in December. Yeah, yeah, yeah December fifteenth. Nice yeah, a lot of nice books coming out. Joshua Rosenblum, a musical director, just wrote a book about Malpe and Shire that's coming out called Closer Than Ever because that's the name of one of their reviews. So that's happening as well. So uh, a lot of good books coming out. Yeah. So we'll have to, you know, stocking stuffers, as we know, Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. get them early, get them Mm -hmm. on the Amazon Mm -hmm. Prime days, whenever those are. (laughs) (laughs) So uh, first up, Peter, you got a chance to see the transfer to Broadway of Merrily We Roll Along. Do we think that this one is going to run more than eight days? (laughs) <laughs> well, to be fair, it was uh, actually uh, two weeks that the official run was. And as I've always said, they were so smart to close it after two weeks because nothing good was going to happen to it. The word of mouth was poisonous. People were leaving during previews. There was so much rewriting. Um, my late great friend Mike Salinas said he was at a performance once where literally the three of them um, Jim Walton, um, Ann Morris, and Lonnie Price looked at each other and were going, um, um, because they couldn't remember, there were so many changes, they couldn't remember what was happening next. You know, so it was very chaotic. And to say, up, oh, you don't like us? Fine, we'll go away. As opposed to a producer getting up there and shaking his fist, saying, we're going to fight. And everybody cheers. And 193 performances later, more money is lost. And that's mm-hmm. that. So um, it was so smart to do it because everybody in the country uh, who directed said, I can fix it. And there have been a million productions. I've seen it in colleges. I've seen it in high schools. I have seen it um, in regional theaters. Um, I have literally seen 14 different productions of it, um, which is really something. Um, But frankly, having been at the closing performance back on November 28th, 1981, I thought they had fixed it then. I really, I've always liked it. Um, I, I will admit at the first preview on October 8th, 1981, I didn't like the first act. Um, I was pretty miserable. But I can watch people be nice to each other now and forever. So in the second act, that's what happens. Um, The people are nice to each other. But it was so amazing to see it here because during the overture, Good Thing Going got acknowledgement applause. You know, like this is the hit song. It's just amazing to see that happen because it's not as if um, it was a song that really charted. I mean, yes, Frank Sinatra sang it. And it's very clever how they use Sinatra's recording in the show. They've been doing that for a while. And it's a very smart thing. But um, but nevertheless, I do think this will be the time when Daniel Radcliffe at least gets a Tony nomination, which uh, has eluded him in his previous attempts at a Broadway show. Because he really is quite wonderful. And you have plenty of time to go to the men's room or ladies' room when the applause happens after uh, Franklin Shepard, Inc., um, um, which is a very demanding number, <laughs> and um, and it really does uh, tear down the house. So it's really something. The other thing is really wonderful. Um, they're so smart to do what they do at the well. Maria Friedman is the one who gets the credit. She's the director um, by having 
Franklin Shepard come out and take his time at the very beginning of the show and walk very lugubriously and then come to the lip of the stage. I mean, he's, he's way, way upstage. Uh, the set is not glorious. Um, it's not ornate. It's, it's simply an apartment um, with many windows. But the way he walks so slowly and deliberately and then comes to the lip of the stage, um, you're worried about him already. And that's really something. Um, for all the talk about the fact that this is a very difficult character, Kraft doesn't make it seem like a difficult character at all. Anyway, Lindsay Mendez, phenomenal as always. I'm telling you, I fell in love with her when she was in Sherry Renee Scott's show <clears throat> with Betsy Wolf. I mean, two great debuts, you know. Um, and um, I, I, I just love the joy that she has. And of course, um, there are times when she can be joyous in, in Marilyn. She has to be the person who is going to help these two guys. Um, stay together um, as collaborators, which does work and doesn't work as time goes on. But, but nevertheless, um, she's a very, very good friend, and she really has a wonderful optimism in the scenes where she has to be optimistic. Of course, as we all know, um, by at the beginning of the show, uh, she's lost that optimism. Um, uh, the, the very few are as jaded as she, and uh, certainly we see what's going to be the end of a friendship. Um, there's a lot of end of friendships here, end of marriage. Um, and really, for all intents and purposes, end of two marriages when you come right down to it. So um, this is never going to be a show that's going to be popular with the general public. Um, it really is um, so inside baseball for um, for people who are in the theater. Uh, I'm sure that uh, Stephen Sondheim either experienced or saw somebody at a backers audition sing a song and it went over so well that they decided to do it again and people weren't paying attention the second time. Um, I don't think that's something that the public can really relate to terribly much. And I don't think the public can relate terribly much to the fact that um, if you, if you decide to be, to give up music and become a Hollywood producer and you produce things that make money, um, fine. I mean, what's the problem? A lot of people think that making money is the only thing that's important in the world. So I think the average person is going to have a hard time with Marilee. But, um, what's really nice is they really set up in, uh, at the, uh, well, towards the end of the show, which is the beginning of the show, so to speak. Um, <laughs> for those who don't know what we're talking about, the show does go backwards in time. Um, the fact that Frank really needs to make it, that um, he sees early on that his in-laws-to-be don't believe in him at all. And one of the reasons is they feel he's not going to make any money. You know, what does he do? He doesn't have a job. You're supporting him, Beth. All all that stuff makes a person really want to to succeed um, in terms of money. And so um, I don't think that the average person in the public can really appreciate that. So I think there's a limited audience for, for Marilee, but it's nice to see that the limited audience isn't as limited as it was in 1981, that there really is substantially more interest. And of course, one of the reasons is the original cast album. There was discussion way back in 1981 that there wouldn't be an original cast album, <laughs> but luckily enough, there was. It's funny that in those days, when the album came out as an LP, isn't this interesting that the song It's a Hit was not on the album? And it is interesting that in the time that people have come to appreciate Merrily, those who appreciate Merrily, that the CD included It's a Hit, because now it is. <laughs> Isn't that, you know, that, that, by the way, that just occurred to me this tenth of a second. I never thought of that before, but I think that's uh, really a very interesting metaphor that, um, 
that it's a hit now. And um, good luck in getting tickets for a while. I I I I do think that uh, were this trying to run now and forever, I don't think it would run now and forever. Um, but um, there are enough of us who care enough, and I think that that really was shown with the acknowledgement applause of good thing going. So um, so if you can get in now, go. If you have to wait, go later. Okay, fine. But do go because um, I, I really do feel they fixed everything. I think what's so wonderful about this iteration of Merrily that this obviously the final rewrite because both of its creators are not no longer with us is that every piece of information is put in at exactly the right point. The things that you'll later come to realize, oh, that was important way back when I heard about that. And the audience was really paying attention and really tied into that. Um, they, they, You could tell from the gurgles of pleasure, the laughs, the acknowledgement that they had heard earlier on something that turned out to be important later on or earlier on, depending on how you look at it. So... Um, it's quite a triumph, and um, we'll certainly hear a lot about it come Tony time. And um, it was just delightful to be there again. So, uh, Michael, Jesse Green wrote an article in the New York Times about uh, Merrily, and uh, what did you think about it? Oh, yeah, well, I'll get to that. But before that, Peter, thank you for the, the point about um, it's a hit that had never occurred to me either. I. I just assumed the reason it was left off the LP was there wasn't room for it. Oh, sure. Yeah. Um, yeah. But but maybe not. I mean, I, I haven't actually checked the timings of that side of the LP. Uh, and also, it, yeah, it would seem that maybe they thought, we don't want to include a song <laughs> called It's a Hit when the show was such a unfortunate mm. flop. Um, well, the other thing, too, is there's um, uh, in the scene at the beginning of the second act where um, everybody's waiting to see if it will be a hit. Um, you know, Joe Josephson says, I want to go in for the closing, uh, meaning the closing of the moments of the show. And he says, I didn't mean the closing, meaning the closing period. That was so amazing on closing night in 1981 when the then unknown Jason Alexander had to say that. Yeah. And, you know, these kids had so much courage um, back in that in that time, that final performance, because there they are singing, it's our time. And it wasn't their time anymore. And uh, Monday would be the unemployment line. You know, I mean, it was really something to see them rise to the occasion. They were such pros in the way that they handled this uh, unmitigated disaster in terms of the public and, and the press. So um, really, I, I was very proud of all of them that night. And um, I was really so amazed to be there. And um, and I remember an intermission running up to a friend and said, I don't give a damn. I think they fixed it. And I did, but I think it's even better now. Well, mm-hmm. um uh, also to your point about the opening of this production, I, I and let me preface my uh, review by saying I have not seen it on Broadway yet, but I did see it at New York mm-hmm. Theater Workshop. Uh, I agree with you about the opening moment that it's really important for the audience to invest in Frank and be concerned about him from the beginning. But another thing, have you heard this, Peter? Some people are interpreting that opening moment as that Frank is standing on the roof at the uh, edge of the the roof contemplating suicide. 
Well, there was a production on 47th Street at that tiny um, theater um, right off uh, 8th Avenue uh, between 8th and 9th, but much closer to 8th. Um, I, I oh, don't the Puerto remember. Rican traveling? Yeah, I, I'm not sure that, uh, that that's yeah. what it's called anymore. I, I, uh, but anyway, um, they were the first people to do that, and I thought it was very smart. And the reason that you knew that's what was happening, because there was the sound of the wind rushing back and forth, so you knew he was outdoors. And um, it was much clearer there, and I thought it was a very smart idea to do it there. And I have no idea if Maria Friedman was told about it or saw that, or uh, it's a coincidence, you know, I mean, so on and so forth. I mean, ironically enough, <laughs> Candor and Ebb wrote a song, called Good Thing Going, which has the same concept of going, going, gone. Um, uh, they wrote it for the act. It never was in the act. I'm not saying Sondheim heard it, saw it, or anything like that. But, uh, you know, so coincidences do occur. And um, uh, and I think this was a coincidence that uh, that production I saw, which really packed a wallop for me, thinking that's a great way to start. So, yes, um, that one was crystal clear that it was uh, a suicide was happening. And here um, you can interpret it that way, but it's, it's not um, as... Um, clear or um definite i sh- i guess i should say well yeah i agree that it's not it's it's not crystal clear but right. i i uh, i haven't seen that obviously at off broadway for several months but i thought that we also heard um maybe some wind and maybe some street noise oh yeah uh, oh. I could be wrong. Maybe it's uh-huh. my memory. Anyway, uh, regardless, some people have interpreted it. Sure, uh, that and it's way. a very, it's very good uh, interpretation. Yeah. yeah, I, I cannot agree that the show has been fixed in terms of the writing. I think I've always said that I think that the old flaws have been swapped out for new ones, <laughs> um, with some of the old flaws retained as well. Uh, and I think it's been improved in some ways, and and actually uh, maybe. Um, there have been some rewrites that were for the detriment. Uh, I think the overwhelming reason for the great success of this production is two reasons. Um, the uh, well, the the show has just become uh, so beloved by so many people because of the score alone, mm-hmm. alone. Mm-hmm. And then, uh, well, I guess maybe three reasons. Uh, now yeah. we have to, now we have this, uh, uh, of course, this residual tremendous amount of love and affection for Sondheim that has only increased mm-hmm. in the wake of mm-hmm. his death. Mm-hmm. Um, but, but then number three, uh, maybe most important of all, the the excellence of the performances of these three leads and the fact that at least two of them uh, could be considered, I would say, pretty big stars at this point uh, uh sure, so sure, yeah sure. um so that so that's what i think i i i every time i see it i hope <laughs> i i guess the rewrites have stopped every every time i see it i hope that like somehow magically some things are going to be changed i i still do not like the fact that what sets charlie off to um to berate his uh, long lifelong friend and partner on national TV is that his friend uh, Frank has just told him that uh, their musical uh, is going to be made into a movie, uh, and and Charlie hates that because he had 
wanted them to start working on uh, the other to, musical to that they continue working on. <laughs> well, well, continue. No, I yeah. mean, who, who, yeah, I guess it's unclear how much they had written uh, of what's it called? Take a left. Take a left. Yes. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, so that's why he's. But you know, I, I just don't think that that offense maybe quite uh, mounts to the point of justifying that kind of a tarot on national TV. I, I was, I, and for example, I think maybe if Frank said something like, um, and you know, buddy, they're going to bring in this young guy um, to rework the script and the lyrics, but you know, that's okay. Then we'll, you know, we'll work together after that again. <laughs> uh, I mean, maybe if he said something like that, if it was a, a real betrayal in that sense. So uh that's I, I like that idea, but I will say that um, my feelings about Merrily being a masterpiece mm-hmm. are certainly minority opinion. Um, certainly. By the way, another thing I want to talk about uh, very quickly is the fact that um, after I looked at the um, uh, marquee outside, Daniel Radcliffe, Jonathan Groff, Lindy Mendez, I, I put on Facebook, Gee, you know, isn't this something that a Tony winner oh, right. is the third build, um, you know, after um, – has that ever happened before? And I can't tell you how many people said, well, the reason it's happening is because Daniel Radcliffe is a big star. No, no, I get as, that. As if you I didn't know, know that. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah, no, yeah. that's not my point. My point was simply, has, has this happened before? And as it turned out, it had. You know, and I said, I'm not saying it's unprecedented. And I'm asking a question. Has it ever happened before? And people pointed out to the Into the Woods revival of um, last year or whenever it was. Um, it, it happened there. And um, somebody else uh, brought up another show that I can't remember. But that's all I was asking. I wasn't saying, how dare they not put Lindy Mendez first <laughs> now that she's won a Tony and those other two nobodies have, you know, I'm, that's not what I was saying at all. Anyway, so in case you were on Facebook and um, were wondering why so many people said, well, you know, Daniel Radcliffe, he has the Q factor. Yeah, 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 yeah. I know, I know. I swear, <laughs> I swear it. I know. Yeah, the, it, it, he was in these Harry Potter films. I get it. Yeah, okay. Well, Lindsay Mendez is phenomenal in this show, so she deserves um, all the all praise for her performance. I'm delighted to see her over the title. You know, I mean, really, you know, it's it's really something to uh, to see that because it it seemed to me not that long ago that she was that backup singer to Sherry Renee Scott. So, uh, good luck to everybody. Um, here's an interesting thing. Uh, someone wrote. Uh, in a review or, or online that uh, someone who had seen the original production uh, wrote that uh, re- of remembering that when he saw it, that Jim Walton as Frank delivered the graduation speech in the opening scene. And uh, some people, including myself questioned that because I'm, I'm not sure I had ever heard that that happened. Uh, well, the next day I ran into Jim Walton on the street How funny! <laughs> walking his dog. <laughs> and I said, Jim, um, can I, do you mind if I ask you a question? <laughs> and, and he said, is it about Merrily? <laughs> <laughs> I said, yeah, how did you guess? And so I asked him and he said um, that he didn't, well, he didn't have a hundred percent clear memory as to exactly how and when it happened. He definitely remembered delivering that speech at some point in the opening scene. He said he thinks he did it for about a week. Mm. Uh, and then Jeffrey uh, Horn, Jeffrey Horn. Yeah, that's yeah. right. That's uh, right. Was hired uh, to play 
uh, the older Frank in just that scene and then briefly in the in the epilogue. Mm-hmm. Uh, and and actually, Jim said he, that he was a little sorry that the speech was taken away from him. <laughs> uh, uh-huh. But uh, so that's a, that was a little nice New York moment that I had. Um, I uh, it, it is so fascinating to see uh, people's reaction to the show now as opposed to back then. Uh, and it's hard to say how much of it is due to the rewrites and how much of it is due to the casting and blah, 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 but but it's a I'm sure it's a combination of of all of those things. Uh, but one thing I I did want to remark that that. James alluded to, uh, yeah, I, I'm I'm a big fan of Jesse Green's writing. Uh, so let me say that to begin with. But he wrote something in his review that to me seemed so odd, and apparently many people agreed with me because I've seen a lot of commentary on this online. And what he wrote is. Merrily is no longer, as it seemed in 1981, the story of the gradual, almost inevitable dimming of youth's sweet illusions, but rather the story of their falsity in the first place. Frank is only devoted to Mary and Charlie when he doesn't have access to anyone more useful. To think he turned into that monster is a mistake. He always was one, as Sondheim clearly understood." That's what everyone does, Mary sings, once the three-way friendship has collapsed, blames the way it is on the way it was, on the way it never, ever was. Now, I cannot agree with that. I, I really don't think that's what... I don't, that's either. What, I don't no, either. Yeah. And and ironically, I think that, um, that the, many of the rewrites to the show have tried to work against that interpretation. As far as I recall um, in the original, and I could be wrong about this, there wasn't so much focus uh, originally on the on Beth's parents uh, putting so much mm-hmm. pressure mm-hmm. on Frank mm-hmm. about you know being able to provide for their daughter mm-hmm. and uh, mm-hmm. I uh, so I think that they have attempted in the rewrites to show that Frank is just trying to make everybody happy you know uh, I I mean I think that's maybe agree, one of I his. Agree. Big flaws. He he wants to make everyone happy, and he doesn't. It's that's impossible. Uh, and he and he maybe does a worse job of it than some other people might do. Um, so I was I, I I respectfully but very strongly have to disagree with that um uh, that opinion of Jesse Green. And then that also brings me back to that that lyric, which and and again, let me say I I love the score. I. I I worship Sondheim, uh, but I, I have never understood that lyric. That's what everyone does, blames the way it is on the way it was, on the way it never, ever was. I, I don't understand blames in that sentence. Mary, say, she keeps saying, why can't it be like it was? I want it the way that it was. Um, but that's not blaming, that's comparing. Uh, I mean, it's fine to say it, it on the way it never was, meaning, well, maybe it, it wasn't really what you the way you remembered it. And maybe time, uh, it, you know, makes the past seem more rosy. Uh, so but I, I, I just can not understand what blames means in in that lyric and i wish <laughs> i don't i don't know if anyone ever asked that specific question for sondheim but i would have loved an explanation for that uh so anyway uh uh merrily is a big hit a big hit for the time being i, I hope 
it continues to be uh, and that it uh, I imagine it will be as long as uh, those three are in it, uh, especially uh, Jonathan and Daniel, because they're the two um, bigger marquee names. Um, and so uh, I, I hope to get back to it uh, and see it again and see how it works on Broadway. I'm sure that the audience response, as Peter indicated must be through the roof and that that always uh almost always helps <laughs> in enjoyment of a show so uh i in looking at jesse green's review again uh he brought up something that started me down a rabbit hole of thinking about why possibly uh what was going on with merrily in, in the original production in 1981 uh and maybe Peter and Michael, you might have something to add here. Uh, he talked about um, that Frank Sinatra and Barbara Streisand made very popular recordings of songs from Merrily, but obviously that was uh, after the performance uh, performances had ended. Right. Um, I, I wonder. You know, what was the atmosphere in New York City and around Broadway at the time? Uh, I'm looking at the 1981-82 season. And right around this time, you had a Camelot. You had uh, the West Side Waltz, Grown Up Kingdoms, Duet for One. Dream Girls was playing. Uh, Little Me. Joseph Me Macy. What was that? Just, um, Dream Girls had just opened, hadn't it? It it, yeah, it looks like yeah. It, Dream Girls opened right after Merrily. Is that what it was? And okay, all right. Joseph and the Amazing Technicolor Dreamcoat, um, Pump Boys, things like that. So, do, do you remember what the feeling was in New York City and around Broadway? Were what was you know Midtown scary at that time? Were there lots of empty theaters? Yes, <laughs> yes. No? Yeah, indeed. Yeah, yeah. So I, I wonder. Uh, Oh, Nicholas Nickleby opened up right before Merrily opened up. Uh-huh. Yeah. Uh, and that had a lot of uh oh, it sure did. a, a lot of buzz. Time, cover of Time magazine. The the ads <laughs> saying you are about to pay more for a theater ticket than you ever thought you ever pay in your entire life. You know, that was a hundred dollars. Which was a lot of money back then. So uh, <laughs> you know, mm-hmm. we know it was coming. Yeah. What's really ironic is um Merrily ran sixteen performances and the show that followed it into the then Alvin Theater couldn't run that long. That was the Little Prince and the Aviator, which uh, quit even before it opened. They said, no, we're not even going to bother opening. Uh, it's not working out at all. So mm. um, I still It's also it. ironic mm-hmm. to think that um, a- as big a flop as the original Merrily was, the uh, that art, their original artwork of the three silhouettes of, the, uh, mm-hmm. of Frank mm-hmm. and Mary and mm-hmm. Charlie on the rooftop mm-hmm. um, was parodied for Forbidden Broadway. That's right. Uh, yeah. And I, you know, I, I, so I suppose at least in a small way, um, Forbidden Broadway kind of helped burnish mm-hmm. the, uh, mm-hmm. you know, the legend of Merrily We Roll Along. I agree. <laughs> legend. What a great word. Yeah. Yeah. It, 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 it is kind it of. Applies. It, yeah. it applies. In our chat room, Alan Teasley point, uh, uh, comments here that I remember the casting of the young people to play middle-aged characters and everyone wearing T-shirts just seemed odd and off-putting. The ending slash beginning, though, was very powerful. 
really powerful. Yeah, and that's another thing. I, I, I of course, we we can't know for sure, but I think that um, that that is one of the other major reasons why now the show. Uh, to most people, seems to work so much better, and I I suspect that if the script and the score of the original had been exactly the same, but they had not done that with the young people, um, and they had not done that with the costumes, uh, that I think maybe the reception of the show might have been a lot greater, a lot more I, positive. I, 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 have to, I have to say that it didn't bother me, but of course I was 42 years younger myself, you know, so I wasn't mm-hmm. that far away from uh, the age of the kids. Well, I was um, even younger stage. than you, of course, but uh, <laughs> yes, yeah, it, it, it did bother and me. It always will be, and always will be. <laughs> right. uh, so, uh, but the other thing um, in terms of the T-shirts, uh, I, I don't think that really helps uh, people in the back of the balcony uh, too much either. Um, right. They'd be able to read them. Though I will remember, I do remember that um, one got a terrific laugh in the um, um, nightclub sequence, the Bobby and Jackie and Jack sequence, when a waiter had a T-shirt that said unemployed actor as opposed to waiter, mm. you know, so uh, uh, that got a laugh back then. Um, it's interesting. This, the, it was originally called the uptown at the downstairs club um or downstairs <laughs> at the uh, now they just say the downtown club um but um but it was a, a parody of what julius monk used to have um upstairs at, at the downstairs. downstairs yeah so um it um that's uh that's what they were going for back then which was still in the public consciousness or at least they hoped it was um those julius monk shows that were at the plaza and various other places sort of like when we say uh uh 54 above. (laughs) Uh, (laughs) I love it when you say that. (laughs) (laughs) So, uh, yeah, there was something else I wanted to say about this, but it has eluded me. So let's keep moving forward here. All right. So uh, last week we ran really long, but we were going to talk about the uh, dead man walking at the Metropolitan Opera. So we figured we'd bump it to this week because uh, it is worth talking about. So, Michael, tell Mm. us about dead man walking at the Metropolitan Opera. Well, first of all, they have two more performances left uh, this week. Well, well, actually, three. There's one today, but that's at at 3 p.m. today. So uh, there's one on Wednesday, uh, the 18th evening and then saturday the 21st matinee uh and i would urge um our listeners to get to it if you think that it's something that you'd like to see uh i really enjoyed it is enjoyed the right word it's a very 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 um difficult piece to watch because it's about capital punishment and it does indeed show us someone being put to death on stage by lethal injection. Um, This is considered the most popular of all modern operas. It has had many productions um, over the, of the past few decades. Uh, This operatic adaptation of dead man walking with music by Jake Heggie and libretto by Terrence McNally. Uh, I saw it years ago at New York city opera and 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 I really liked it then, and now uh, it's finally having its Met opera premiere, uh, can, and conducted by Yannick Nézé-Séguin, uh, their 
music director. So that's that's notable. And the central role of sister Helen Prejean is played by a, a great, great singing actress, Joyce DiDonato. Um, and Ryan McKinney plays the uh, the fellow who's about to be put to death, Joseph de Rocher. Uh, it's a really good production, uh, and I'm almost kind of surprised to say that because it's directed by Ivo Van Hova. But um, I think he does better with uh, things like this than when he's trying to rework a classic musical. Um there, there is uh, something that you will recognize uh, that he does in this production, a technique he uses, uh, where um, there are videographers on the stage dressed in black um, walking around with cameras in order to capture uh, close-ups and, and closer shots of these singers, which are then projected on huge uh, screens, um, sort of a... a, a on the back or or above the action and um on the one hand having the the black clad figures there with the cameras is somewhat distracting but i'm not going to say that uh it, it doesn't help a lot to be able to see the singers in close up at very very fraught cl- uh moments of the drama uh because it does help really really greatly especially in such a large theater uh, the Metropolitan Opera seats uh, almost four thousand people. Uh, so um, I, uh, it's it's the score. I think is absolutely perfect for the story. It, it, it's not melodious in in any traditional way, except um, for a little sort of a childish little hymn that is heard at the beginning and the very ending of the piece and and when it occurs at the ending it's so moving i can't even i can't even describe it to you um but it's very dramatic music and i think the uh the way that the libretto is set to the music is masterful uh and it isn't very it is it is a very very excellent libretto by terence mcnally whom i have always felt um I have always vastly preferred his work uh, for musicals and, in this case, operas um, to his straight plays uh, for whatever reasons. That's just my opinion. I I think this is another example of that. Um, Incredibly powerful, has not uh, been selling anywhere near as well, despite rave reviews. Oh, really? Despite rave reviews, uh, nowhere near as well as the, the... the war horses uh, the met wow. like uh, la Bohème, uh-huh. uh, which you can also uh, see uh, there now if you want um and i uh got an excellent seat for 37 dollars uh so i do highly recommend it if you think you're you know if you can prepare yourself for being um pretty much emotionally devastated by that scene of the execution at the end and and also um, there's some really wonderful scenes before the. Uh, uh, I hope this isn't a spoiler, but uh, through, throughout almost the entire opera, De Rocher denies that he committed the murder, but um, uh, Sister Prejean keeps begging him 
to confess because she she doesn't believe him and she thinks it's necessary for him uh to confess in order to unburden his soul basically and so finally finally he does and it's uh, the most harrowing incredible aria if that's the word for it um that that i've ever heard um mm. uh brilliantly performed by ryan mckinney um so yeah if you if you think you're up for all that uh i mean i i almost hesitated buying a ticket because i remembered how devastating it was the first time but then i said i i i, I owe it to myself i owe it to the met to support this and i really did want to see joyce d donato who had done it before i wanted to see her again and i wanted to see and hear ryan mckinney uh so i'm very glad that i made that decision if uh you cannot make it to the new york city area uh, oh, right. That man walking is going to be broadcast live in HD uh, in uh, theater, some theaters. Uh, we'll have a link to that in the show notes where you can uh, check that out there. It, the, the website is full of of trigger warnings there to let you know that uh, that this just, you know, they want to let people know that this might not be for everybody, but uh, Metropolitan Opera is really making it happen. They have many uh, different offerings in their uh, live and HD series. So uh, yes. we'll have a link to that in the show notes. So uh, let's see, Peter, you're back from Chicago where you saw four different shows there. So why don't you tell us about your trip? Fine. Um, but ironically enough, in talking about the first thing I saw, Otto Frank, it also brings to mind something I saw in New York, which was called Anne Being Frank, mm-hmm. uh, which mm-hmm. was a very clever idea. Uh, we all know, I'm sad to say, what happened to Anne Frank, um, that everybody points out that it, it, she was so close to uh, surviving from the vantage point that the Allies were just about to uh, liberate the camps and um, she just couldn't make it. But how did she survive as long as she did? And that's the story that Ron Alicia wants to tell in the end being Frank, uh, which is uh, at the theater on 28th Street, Emerging Artist Theater, um, 15 West 28th Street on the second floor. And... um, and the ideas you've come up with are, are really ones that, that hold tremendous water. Well, um, also, he's very lucky to have Alexis Fishman doing uh, the part uh, of Anne Frank. It's a one-person show, and um, she really throws herself into it and really gets the pathos, the humor, um, the difficulties. Uh, it's a masterful performance. And she goes on at a very clever clip, um, a very fast clip, because um, she's a young girl, and she also fantasizes what's going to happen after the war. She ex- expects that she's going to uh, have a job in New York um, as a writer. Um, so this it's a terrific idea. Now, Otto Frank, R- Roger Governor Smith, um, who's a fine actor, um, is giving a very different type of show. And what he does is speak very slowly and very deliberately. Now, the thing is that when you think of it, uh, if you've been through what Otto Frank had been through, 
you're not going to be speaking at a quick clip. So mm -hmm. the difference between the two is really palpable and very smart. You know, that Anne is still a young girl um, and um, certainly sees a future for herself, while Otto Frank um, has problems that will never be solved to him as he has to remember the past. So it was a very effective performance by Roger Gubner Smith, and I really commend him for it. So that's where I spent Saturday afternoon. Saturday night, I went uh, to the Raven Theater to see Night Watch. Night Watch was a play that was done in the 70s on Broadway and was made into an Elizabeth Taylor film, um, which isn't readily available. Um, luckily enough, um, a copy uh, wended its way into my collection. And I have to admit, I think the movie's better. Um, the idea behind this play is that um, a woman has, we don't learn this till the end, but I'll tell you, that uh, a woman discovers that uh, her husband and her best friend, who's been living with them for a while, uh, are having an affair. And the way she cleverly gets around killing them and getting away with it <laughs> is very, very smart. Um now, I know I've given this away, but um, nevertheless, um, watching it happen uh, at the Raven Theater, um, if, if you're in the area, um, by all means, uh, go see it, because it's a very, very fine production. Let me point out here, this is a good place as, as well as any other place in this broadcast to say that, Yes, I could have gone to Steppenwolf. Yes, I could have gone to the Goodman. But I wanted to see what Chicago Theater was like uh, with uh, without the marquee names. So I purposely chose um, off the beaten path things. And, and as a result, I was so impressed with what I was seeing, um, and which really goes to show how great a town Chicago is. You know, it's all very nice to see the, uh, the big boys and say, wow, Chicago's terrific. But by seeing the ones that, um, are, aren't, um, uh, you should pardon the expression major theaters. And I hope I'm not insulting these people. I mean, a lot of these theaters are very small that I went to. Um, but um, a tremendous job by this cast in Nightwatch. And it was really wonderful that the, the woman who played the maid also played a psychiatrist. Uh, her name is Kathy Schiambetera. And um, it was wonderful to hear the people behind me um, saying, is that the same woman? <laughs> Could that be? Is it? Yeah, and it's wonderful that you can't um, have any greater compliment than that uh, when you're when you're doing that. So, uh, so, but um, Ila Alayam Peck uh, as Elaine, and certainly Corian Jalima as uh, John. Again, names you don't know, but they're terrific. You know, so um, so that was really worthwhile. All right, the motivation for the trip came the next day in the afternoon. What I really wanted to see was Cat's Cradle because, um, like college kids in the 60s um reading kurt vonnegut was de rigueur and cat's cradle uh, at that point in time at least for me was the best of the bunch and i just loved this uh book which was to be made into a musical it was optioned by hillard elkins the notorious producer who um produced oh calcutta uh and um notorious in many ways um, I will never forget that uh, when I called him notorious in Theater Week magazine, nine months later, he called me out of the blue and <laughs> said, um, I just found out what you wrote about me. Why did you call me notorious? And when I told him why, he said, oh, that does sound like me. That's a story to be told if you run into me at the theater. I'll <laughs> fill it in. But anyway, um, so uh, it was to be made to a musical. It would have been a wild and crazy musical. 
because a cat's cradle, for those who don't know it, um, is about um, uh, uh, an island, Stan Lorenzo, where indeed Franklin Honecker is um, a, a minister. Uh, I don't mean a religious minister, a prime minister, I should have said. And um, that's surprising to people because he was quite the slacker when he was growing up. However, his father, Felix Honecker, and Honecker, of course, is meant to sound like Honecker, the, the holiday, um, it, it was the father of the atomic bomb. Of course, he wasn't. This is a fictional character. But anyway, he also invented something else. And so Frank and his sister Angela, who is described in the novel as not being attractive, and Newt, who's um, what we now call a little person, but that is not what uh, indeed uh, Kurt Vonnegut called him, or John Hildreth, the uh, the adapter. But um, they have something that's really as <laughs> as dangerous, very different from the atomic bomb, but something that's as dangerous as the atomic bomb. And the world could very well end if this gets out. And the way it gets out is astonishingly clever. Um, it does get out there. Um, so there, it's a fanciful, fanciful uh, story. And there are a lot of... Uh, magnificent adventures that happen to people along the way. And what's really great is that um, there is a god on the island named Bokonan. They say Bokonan, but I, I've always said Bokonan. Um, so anyway, he's not a god. I mean, he's just not an arbitrary person. But what Vonnegut is getting at is any of us, um, are you listening, Elrond Hubbard? Can start our own religion. You know, I mean, why not? You know, I mean, anybody else can. I mean, who who knows uh, all these people who started religions way back when? I mean, uh, why did they do it? Uh, what gave them the authority to do it? Anybody can start. Maybe after this uh, podcast is over, people listening can start their own religion. Have a good time. Why not? Um, and that's one of the points that um, he makes. So Baconin fully admits fully admits that you know, all religions are, are, are ridiculous, including his. Uh, he, he's very... Um, by the way, if you ascribe to this religion of San Lorenzo, you are put to death on the hook, which is this enormous fish hook. Enormous! And they just throw you on it, uh, which gives one of my favorite lines in the book, which is not in the play. Um, when Bacona says, if I am ever put to death on the hook, Expect a very human performance. Uh, I mean, he's going to scream and yell and, you know, don't expect him to be uh, this holy man who's going to bear it with no problem whatsoever. I also wish that uh, Hildreth had included um, the line about uh, the Grand Falloon. A Grand Falloon um, is, is a term that Baconin invented, which talks about a false friendship. The people bond over something. Yeah. Oh, Oh, you, you come from Malden, Massachusetts? Oh, that's great. You know, that's a grand full. What does it mean? You know, that uh, you have something in common. Does that mean you have anything else in common? No, it means nothing of the kind. And I wish Hilda had included the uh, famous uh, line. Um, if you wish to study a grand falloon, just peel off the skin of a toy balloon, meaning there's nothing there. So, um, well, here I am criticizing what he didn't include. What he did include, I thought some of it was pretty irrelevant. There's a scene in an elevator where two people are going up in the elevator, and the elevator operator is a funny guy. But you don't need that in a play. I mean, you know, uh, the, the most important thing a playwright can ask himself when he's writing a play is, why is this the scene we must see right now? And indeed, we don't get that 
um, in um, this version of Cat's Cradle. We get a lot of divertissements. Now, indeed, you know, in a novel, you can take those. You know, I mean, you can savor them, you can read them over. But in a play, it's all about the action going forward. That's what's really important. And um, I'm afraid that some of the times um, that um, you wouldn't be able to um, really appreciate the novel as a result of what's been put on stage. But really, I have to say, if you want to go to this production of Cast Cradle, it is worthwhile if you read the book in advance. Now, that does indicate that Hildreth um, did have an ultimate problem. Um, it really should stand on its own. But it's such a diffuse, crazy, um, all-over-the-place novel that it would seem hard to adapt. And I will say that years ago, I saw another adaptation in Philadelphia, which um, I thought really missed the point entirely. Um, I thought it was truly terrible. But this one is far more successful, even though it's not totally successful. So um, Lifeline Theater in Chicago is the name of the uh, company. And indeed, um, I thought that the direction the direct good lord do you, you, you remember how wonderful the direction was of natasha pierre rachel chafkin um how she had to do all these crazy things and put this one here this one there all that kind of stuff mm. well you know um here we are with a woman named heather curry who i'm telling you did as magnificent a job as rachel chafkin did because um it, it, it people coming in and out I, I, you know to say traffic cop is the term we usually use for something like this but really this is the chief of police i mean this is uh, it, it's incredible how entrances and exits and and if that isn't amazing enough um the person playing uh, Felix Honecker um, was an understudy. His name is Orion Lay Sleeper. And let me tell you, he wasn't laying around and sleeping. I mean, this was his second performance. He told me he only had two hours of rehearsal put in. Letter perfect. And again, people coming in, out. He didn't bump into anybody. I mean, it was it was incredible to watch this. Um, but everybody in it was really uh, quite good. So terrific production. Terrific direction, terrific performances, and a terrific experience if you knew Cat's Cradle going in. Okay, so that's that. Um, that night, I went to see Baked uh, by the Theo Company. Now, um, I have a history with the uh, person who runs this company, and uh, it's a delightful history, I have to say. Um that um, I've been so, so thrilled over the years to um, tell the story of getting to know the artistic director of the company, Christopher Padrinick, um, because um, he wrote me when he was a, a teenager, and I didn't know he was a teenager, and he was coming to New York. I said, let's get together. He says, I'll have to ask my parents. Whoa, you know, I'm, <laughs> um, I want to meet your father and mother, you know, that type of thing. Um, but anyway, I'll never forget, we went to see Scott Siegel's show, uh, the Broadway musicals of 1964, in which Richard Skipper played Carol Channing and Stephen Brinberg played Barbara Streisand. <laughs> and the kid looked at me with stars in his eyes and said, my first drag show, you know, so <laughs> anyway, that was years ago. And Chris has really done tremendous work. And, um, and here he is with this theater company and he has this new musical, um, which, uh, has, um, a book, um, and, um, score by names that probably are unknown to most people, uh, Deepak Kumar and George Liu. Um, Deepak is, a um, is uh i think identifies as a man and george lee uh leo identifies as a woman i think you know um but anyway this is a story about um 
um, Asians who uh, run a, um, a a bakery that um, isn't doing terribly well. However, their uh, the father and mother have their hopes pinned on a better life for their daughter Jane. Um, they really believe that she's going to amount to something, and she's really up for a scholarship, and it looks like she's going to get it, and um, and that'll be fine. I mean, the fact that their business is failing, they've kept from her. They don't want her to know that. They don't want her to worry. Well, the kid doesn't get the scholarship, and she doesn't want her parents to worry, so she tells them that she did. Um, so... It's a strange thing to compare this musical to Cactus Flower, but nevertheless, Cactus Flower is a, is a, a commercial comedy from the '60s where the point was lies just lead to other lies. I mean, you tell one lie and it just keeps on going, and it just gets worse and worse, and that's what happens here. I mean, how does she get the money? How does she get the money to succeed? Um, is not the best way, and um, she really drags a lot of people into it. That uh, well, she's dragged into it herself, but then she gets her very best friend, who's crazy for her. It's not sexual; it's just they're very good friends, and um, she gets her involved. Unfortunately, the writers do paint themselves into a corner uh, because they can't get her out of it to anybody's satisfaction. I mean, she does a terrible thing to her friends, and uh, it's not something that they find a way to redeem. Okay, fine. Yeah, young writers, first show. Yeah, you know, uh, as I mentioned weeks ago, uh, there's a very famous team now. When I saw their first show, I gave them a bad review, and they felt that um, it, it was a terrible thing for me to do. And now, when I bring it up to them, they say, "Oh, that one." You know, I don't think it's impossible that they will come when these writers say, "Oh, that one," to bait. Um, but the potential is tremendous. I mean, I, my heart sank, of course, when the first two lines didn't rhyme correctly, um, and I wish they'd take a look at that and. Uh, really pay attention to that but there is so much up until the point where they really as i say paint themselves into a corner where they really cannot solve the problem of making us like this girl after she does something terrible um the fact is up until that point it's really engrossing tremendously engrossing and uh the music um has that nervousness that so many contemporary musicals have and it's right for the characters very right for the characters wonderfully performed tremendously performed um i was um and uh you know i have to say that grace um dolezal um did a terrific job of directing i thought that chris was actually going to do it but um no he trusted this um this director and uh, certainly got good uh, results um but uh sunny arasso is jane tremendous divan hayakawa as casey her um tremendous uh, they, they were all good I, even a an actor simply known as Z, um, the character is known as Z, uh, Riley O. Wonderful. I mean, they were all so good. And I'm telling you, I really do believe we're going to hear from these people, um, these writers again. And uh, boy, um, the next one's really going to be good. Okay. So uh, were you going to say something else? No, I'm done. Okay. Aren't you glad? <laughs> <laughs> So that was your trip to Chicago. Uh, we saw four shows there. Mm-hmm. We'll have a link to all of them in the show notes. Uh, Bake the Musical was uh, uh, just was in New York uh, just recently. 
and also has an option for having a meal with it. So uh, you can uh, check out all those uh, different options here in the show notes where we have the links to everything. So uh, to wrap up this morning's reviews, Michael, you got over to Wagner College, your alma mater, to see a production of Pippin. So tell us about it. Yes, I wanted to make note of it because there were some really, really talented people in it, which is not surprising. Uh, Pippin was played very appealingly by a fellow named Paul Hogan, not to be confused with Crocodile Dundee. Um, <laughs> and he he really was wonderful. He had a beautiful voice. Um, he had a very uh, sincere, earnest uh, demeanor about him that uh, maybe uh, maybe a little more um, a little more introspective than some other pippins I've seen. He also was physically uh, different from most of the pippins I've seen. This was kind of like as if you were watching some guy from the wrestling team. Play, play Pippin. Uh, but he was terrific. Also, uh, great were Kyle Monroe as Charlemagne, uh, Mackenzie. Well, Mackenzie Quinn Ross played the leading player. And though I'm on record as really, really not wanting to see that role played by a woman, um, because I just think it's so important to have that male male dynamic between the leading player and Pippin. But that said, uh, she did a terrific job and she has a great voice. I, I think that I, I hope her voice is heard in future um, in a professional capacity. Mackenzie Quinn Ross, uh, also great. L. We met, O U I M E T, as Vestrada. And a special shout out to Emily Durkin as Catherine. Uh, Catherine is a difficult role, she doesn't even come on the scene until like the second or third scene of the second act. So she really has to make an impression when she does come on. And um, Emily Durkin had so much, um, she was so ingratiating. She had such a wonderful, lovely quality about her that you immediately liked her uh, as soon as she came out. She's also very pretty and had a beautiful voice. So that didn't hurt. Uh, and one could certainly understand why Pippin made the decision to, stay with her uh, rather than to seek glory in the world, which was his original intention. Um, uh, Marvin Moser as Lewis, I don't want to forget him because he was quite, quite amusing. And the uh, choral singing of this production was outstanding. I, I went with our friend Kevin McInerney and he and I both commented on that at intermission after the morning glow number um the 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 quality of the singing was great and also it uh, again it was a plus that i would say maybe the ensemble was about twice the size uh that you would see in a professional production of pibman so there was this huge sound and there there wasn't a lot of amplification um in fact this is one of the very few shows I, i've seen that perhaps could have been amplified a little bit more. Uh, but that certainly wasn't necessary in the choral numbers. The, um, to hear all of that sound coming at you and basically natural without a lot of boosting was really, really something. So uh, I'm glad I went, if only uh, from the experience, the musical experience of this production. Um, 
I think there were some issues. This I, I've gone on on several occasions about how in the professional theater, uh, we so often find director choreographers who, to me, um, are much better at choreography than direction. And that, to me, is also true of the fellow who directed this production, who's done many shows there. And I felt that same thing about every production that he's done there in the past. So, um, so these kids had that to kind of as a challenge uh, to uh, kind of work against. I didn't feel they were given any help from that person, uh, but talent shines through. And uh, I'm glad I made the trip to Staten Island on a horrendous weather day. Uh, constant rain yesterday and not a hint of sunshine. Um, and we almost canceled, but uh, we went anyway, and that was a great choice. Okay, so uh, that wraps up for this morning. Before we get on to not our trivia, but our brain teasers uh-huh. and our musical moment, <laughs> I want to remind everybody that you can subscribe to these broadcasts by going to the broad- front page of broadwayradio.com. There's a subscribe link that we each and every time we have a new episode of This Week on Broadway, it'll be automatically downloaded to Apple Podcasts for you. Of course, you don't have to get us in Apple Podcasts. as many ways to get us. You can subscribe to us in Patreon. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N, patreon.com slash Radio to get us early and support all the work that we do through all the different Broadway radio broadcasts. Um, we also can be found on Spy, uh, Spotify, iHeartRadio, TuneIn, Pandora, Google Play, which is now becoming YouTube Music, all those different places or anywhere that you can find finer podcasts. Contact information for Peter, for Michael, and me can be found in the show notes at broadwayradio.com, as well as links to some of the things we've talked about today. So, Peter, do you have an answer to last week's brain teaser when she starred in a broadway musical her leading man was an actor who had won an oscar when she repeated her role in the film version her leading man was a different actor and yet he had won an oscar too but for a different film who was she the oscar winners and the musical well in call me madam ethel merman played opposite paul lucas on stage who'd won an oscar for watch on the rhine on screen she played opposite george sanders who had won an academy award for all about eve Tony Janicki, who, by the way, accompanied me to all four shows in Chicago, was the first to get it, followed by Arthur Robinson, Paul Witte, Sean Logan, Brigadude, and Phil Bond. This week's question, what do Daniel Radcliffe and a musical that came from London to Broadway in the last half of the 20th century have in common? <laughs> Okay, if you have an answer for that, you can email us at trivia at broadwayradio.com. We'll let you know if you're on the right track. So, Michael, what do we have in this week's musical moment? Well, I have in my collection, uh, aside from the wonderful original cast album of Pippin, I have the Australian cast album and the South African cast album. And I was just re-listening to them yesterday uh, and this morning after having seen Pippin at Wagner College, because I really do love that score. And by the way, um, seems like for a while I was hearing rumors of either a feature film or a TV movie uh, adaptation of Pippin, but it never seems to happen. Any any? No, I don't know anything about word that. on that. No. Of course, there was the 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 one. There was a video way back when, but um, right, yeah. yeah. Yeah, well, I think I, it would be terrific, especially um, maybe better for a TV production, one of those 
Yeah, right. Things Good that they idea. do because there's yep. so much opportunity yep. for audience interaction and yeah. you know all that. Anyway, uh, we hope that happens to some point. But these two recordings. Um, have their pluses and minuses, but uh, overall they're pretty good. And I, I, I selected two uh, of the better cuts, I think, from them. So our opener is Corner of the Sky from the original Australian cast album of Pippin, as sung by Johnny Farnham. And the closer is the uh, finale, which I, I guess the title of the finale is actually Pippin. That's that's the title of it um, from the original South African cast album with uh, cast, including Sammy Brown as the leading player and Hal Waters, W-A-T-T-E-R-S as Pippin. So I hope you enjoy those selections. That uh, that Australian uh, Pippin, John Farnham, he was on the 1992 cast uh, recording of Jesus Christ Superstar. He's my favorite Jesus. So if you wow. haven't listened oh. to the Australian Jesus Christ Superstar, uh, take a listen to it. It's a new way of listening to, or it's a new set of arrangements for Jesus Christ Superstar. It's really, really wonderful. Oh, I think I have that too. Yeah, I'm going to have to yeah. drag that out. Thanks for pointing out that it's the same person. <laughs> <laughs> so on behalf of Michael Portantier and Peter Felicia, This is James Marino saying thanks so much for listening to Broadway Radio's This Week on Broadway. Bye-bye. Bye.
a giant bird that soars to the sea. And if I'm never tied to anything, I'll never be free. Shows and miracles, mirages to touch. I wanted such a little thing from life. I wanted so much. I never came close, my love. We nearly came near. It never was there. It was here. They showed me crimson, gold, and lavender, a shining parade. But there's no color I can have on earth that won't finally fade. When I wanted worlds to paint. Costumes to wear. I think it was here, 'cause it never.